probably um, a little bit of an unfamiliar psalm, not one of the more well-known psalms. Um, if you remember, or if you are completely new to Christianity, especially in reading the Word of God, the psalms are poems, songs, written on for different occasions uh, to express a variety of emotions and different aspects of life and what people were going through. And today we are in Psalm 16, which is a, a psalm that is written near, uh, under the threat of death. It's something's going on. The author of this psalm is King David, and he is writing about something going on under the threat of death. We don't know exactly what, but we know that his life somehow was in danger. And he is writing to pursue or to understand who God is in the midst of this and looking at life holistically. And not just looking at the threat of death that confronts him, but looking at life saying, what does life look like? How do I look at life in the full? How do I look at this suffering that I'm going through through the lens of God? Now, as if you've been like me and you've ever witnessed to someone and told someone about Jesus, you, you sometimes can talk about, or we don't often talk about suffering and what an individual is going through. Because some people say, if God is so good, then why do people suffer? But we show that even throughout the scripture, the saints of God suffered, some of them tremendously, at the cost of their lives. We don't like to talk about that. We like the fairy tales, right? The happily ever after. And there's even Christian groups out there today that said that if you're suffering, then something's wrong. Now, unfortunately, that is completely antithetical to the Word of God. The Word of God talks a great deal about suffering and trials and tribulations and pains and problems and persecutions. But it also talks about how to see God in the midst of them. Christianity is not a fairy tale. As I've talked with different people over the years and trying to share Christ with them and trying to examine their reasons for not believing, one of the, the uh, things that I've come across is that some believe that Christianity is a myth. It's, it's made up in order to keep people in subjection. Even Karl Marx, the founder of communism, said it was the opium, religion is the opium of the masses. It's a way of controlling individuals, and it's just mythical. And we see these different myths, as some of these individuals purport and write, within different religions of the world. We see the understanding of resurrection within ancient Egypt, or in the, the, the religion of the Babylonians, or the Persians, or the Greeks, and, and all the ancient world has these different religions. And they look at Christianity as just one of those in a line of many others, and said that Christianity is just a myth, just like all of those, just like Zeus, just like Hera, just like Aphrodite, just like Osiris, just like all of these different things. Christianity is just made up. It's a big, giant myth. But the major differences with all of those religions is that Christianity is in time. It's not mythical. I mean, you read Homer, if you've ever read Homer's Iliad or Odyssey, and it is definitely mythical, but not so the Scripture. The scripture names dates, places, gives secular ruler names, talks about that Christianity is very much real and, and situated and rooted within history, that it really happened, that Jesus Christ really did exist, and he is the defining point of history. I don't know if you're familiar with what's going on within education today, but I remember growing up, and some of you are, who remember, when you were looking at the dates of things, you'd see B.C. and A.D. Remember that? Today, it's not B.C. or A.D., because B.C. Uh, refers to before Christ, 
And then A.D. is Anno Domino, which is the, means the year of our Lord. It's looking at time within the understanding of who Jesus is. He becomes the defining point of history. God entered into time to dwell within flesh. But scholarship today rejects that, preferring to use the initials B.C.E. and then C.E. You'll see it within textbooks today, all over the place. It's, they, and they redefine it, and they say it's before the common era, and then the common era. And textbooks are full of this today. But the funny thing to me is, is though they're largely trying to remove Christ from history, they're still putting at year zero the birth of Christ. So even though they're rejecting it, they still can't get away from it. So we look at this and how secular scholarship has tried to remove God from, I mean, the classroom tries to remove God from public life, tries to remove God in several different ways because they believe that Christianity is a fairy tale. Now, we all have heard fairy tales when the time that we were children was sitting in our mother or father's lap reading stories. And how does the story always end? And they lived happily ever after. Now, I laugh at those stories, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a realist. And so even when I was reading this, this, these little fairy tales with my oldest daughter, and before she could read, I wouldn't say, and they lived happily ever after. I refused. Especially when a couple would ride off into the sunset. I would say, and they had many difficult years, but they loved God and worked together in Christ until they reached glory. Amen. And my wife would be shaking her head on the side. But I, because I wanted to present a realistic view, is that we understand we're going to have struggles. We are going to be facing suffering and persecutions and pains and problems and trials and tribulations and all of these things. So we understand that not everything ends in a fairy tale. Not everything ends happily ever after. For those of you who have been divorced, you know what I'm talking about. You know exactly the pain. You, you, you wonder where that happily ever after is at. But you know, though, many different religions in the world, and what the world promises to us is a happily ever after, if you do what it says. If you obey what the world decides to feed you, the world says you will live happily ever after. But the reality is far, far different according to the testimony of the Word of God. There's only one, one, one way of living life in which it lives happily ever after. And that may not mean happily ever after within this world, but in eternity with Christ. See, David knew that. David knew that there was a happily ever after, even as he was under the threat of death. But that happily ever after wasn't necessarily in the here and now. So I would invite you to turn your attention with me to the book of Psalms, chapter 16. And it is our tradition here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. A mitchem of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. 
I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pause and ask God's blessing on our message time together. Father God, we come before you, Lord, knowing that in your presence is fullness of joy. Lord, help us to look at our lives through the lens of your word. Help us not to see our present problems and pains through the lens of this life, but through the full spectrum of eternity. Lord, I know that there are many today that are suffering, that are going through very difficult times, whether it's physical afflictions or relational difficulties or painful problems in their workplace. Lord, I pray that you touch their heart, that you might be that refuge to them and ever-present help in time of trouble. Lord, be in our time today and glorify the na- your name above all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, let's start off, and I'd encourage you to stay with me as we go through this passage piece by piece. It starts off as the Mitkam of David. Now, a Mitkam, we're not exactly sure what it means. Some believe it to be a liturgical or musical term. Remember, sometimes these were songs. It was a certain type of uh, cadence that might be going with it. Some actually believe that this is a poem. We're not exactly for sure on this. All we do know is that there are four other Mitkams of David, but they occur between Psalm 56 and Psalm 60. This one's a little bit out of place in that regard. Now, again, we don't know what that term means, but we do know that it's of David. Now, if you remember, David is the, the, the apex, the highlight, the man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man who just loved God, the shepherd boy who became king, and the one who took down the mighty Goliath as a young boy. I mean, this is the man of, who brought the ark of God into Jerusalem and helped establish Jerusalem to be the capital, the center, the hub of the Jewish nation. And he is a poet. He is a a warrior poet. He's a great commander, but he's also sensitive. He plays the harp, and he he writes this poetry, but he's a great lover, and he's very strong. He's very loyal. He's an amazing guy, just to do a study in the life of David, and he's a man's man. I mean, he's, he's the man that every man wants to be, and he's the type of man that every woman just loves and admires. He's a pretty amazing guy. So David is the author of this psalm, and it is a mitcom of David. Now, as we look within this, he starts off with, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, if you've been here over the past several weeks, just a few weeks ago we went through Psalm 46, and we talked about God is our refuge and ever-present help in time of trouble. And the word literally means a place to free in to- flee in times of difficulty. So he's saying here that God is a refuge, that I can flee to Him during my difficult time that I am experiencing. And he, is, he says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now what's he saying there? And what do we learn? What can we learn from David? And what is David trying to communicate to us? Because I believe that he is trying to show us what it means to live happily ever after. But what is that? What does it mean? Well, I believe that he's trying to show us that we are, or or living happily ever after involves remembering the faithfulness of the Savior. That God is faithful, that he is always there for us. That he shows himself to be faithful on our behalf. He is, as the Marines call, semper fidelis. 
If anybody in here that's been a Marine, I know we have some Marines that have served in the military in here. And the term that the motto of the Marines is Semper Fidelis, which is the Latin, which means always faithful. Always faithful. No matter what. That is the, the motto of this branch that seeks to always be faithful to the task at hand. Now, God is the very definition of Semper Fidelis. He is always faithful. He's always faithful. And, and there's three ways that God is always faithful. He's faithful in his person. God, in his essence, is faithful. What he says he will do. He will never, ever go back on a promise. Now, it's interesting to note here that there are three words used for God in verses 1 and verse 2. Look at that. Preserve me, O God. Now, the first word that's used there is the word El. It is the omnipotent understanding that God is all-powerful. God is strong. So he's saying, preserve me, protect me, O God. You are the all-powerful one, that refuge for me, that no one is stronger than you. But he also uses two other terms. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord. Now, notice in your Bibles, it is in all capital letters, is it not? It's the way that the translators have, done, have translated the term Yahweh. Sometimes we translate it as Jehovah. It is the covenant name of God, the personal name of God, that God revealed to Moses when Moses was at the burning bush, after he had taken his sandals off his feet, because the place on which he was standing is holy ground. And God commissions him to go and free the Israelites out of bondage within Egypt. And he says, when the people ask me what your name is, what do I say? He says, you'll say that I am Yahweh. And the word literally means to be, or I am, that I am has sent me to you. So he's giving the very covenant name of God, which means that he's, it's, it's the God of Israel, the one true God. And now lastly, he uses another term. He says, you are my Lord. Now notice that is not in all caps. It is the term Adonai, which means Lord. It can mean earthly master or it can mean heavenly master, either way. But David is saying here that, first of all, you are the omnipotent God, the all-powerful God. Not only that, but you are the God of Israel, the one true God. And lastly, you are my God, my Lord. And he's recognizing that God, he is entrusting himself to God as master. That he's saying, God, you are my master and my Lord. I organize my life entirely to you because I trust in who you are, in your person. God is faithful in his person. He can't fail. Every promise that he has uttered through his word will be made sure. So God is faithful in his person. He is truly the definition of simple, simper, fidelis. But he is not only faithful in his person, but he is faithful in his preservation. His preservation. That's why in verse 1 he says, preserve me, O Lord. Sometimes it's, it's, it's actually translated as protect me. That God can hold you up. That God can hold on to you. That he can protect you. That no matter what man may do, that he can preserve and protect you. Just as we've talked about over the past several weeks, as I've alluded to it, when Daniel's friends were in the get ready to be cast into the fiery furnace, they told King Nebuchadnezzar, who was, had given a decree that they must bow down and worship. And if anyone who didn't worship his image would be cast into the fiery furnace. And they confront, he confronts them, and they said, King, O oh King, we have, no, no, we have nothing to say to you. 
Because we, know, we will never bow down to your image. And our God is able to save us. But if not, know, know that we will not bow down or worship you. That God is able to do it. And God will do it. God will preserve and protect you. Now that doesn't mean that you're always going to be kept from physical harm or danger. I mean, look at our example with the Lord himself. Or even the Apostle Paul. Or even any of the, the followers, uh, Jesus' apostles, many of them died horrible deaths. Does it mean that God is going to preserve and protect them? And when we look at them and we say, doesn't that seem contradictory? That here, they, he, David is saying that, preserve me, O God. And when we look at the New Testament, we see that the suffering and pain that the earliest followers of Christ went through. Does that seem contradictory? No, he's saying that I am able to preserve you even through death. That... I will never forsake you in that someone might kill me, but that's not going to affect my eternal state. See, we need to be able to look at life through the lens of eternity. We have a very limited view of things. We're not seeing life through the greater lens of time and eternity, in the temporal and in the eternal. Understanding where our heavenly destination is, that God is able to preserve us and be with us as we go through our trials. I think of Joseph. Joseph is a man who suffered greatly. If you look at his life, it's a little bit depressing. Here's a guy that's honoring God, that God is revealing himself to him as a teenage boy. He's 17 years old, but he becomes the object of ridicule and jealousy because of the favor their father bestows upon Joseph particularly and specifically. And in a rage of jealousy, when they see Joseph coming to them, they come up with a plot to kill him. So they capture him, beat him up, throw him into this, this pit, and they're debating on how they're going to kill him. When one of the brothers intercedes and says, no, 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 let's not do this. So they decide to sell him into slavery. Now, it's strange to me that we think, Here, here's this man, that we see that the favor of God is upon him, even as a young man, and now he's being sold into slavery by his own family. That's pretty depressing. And he goes off to Egypt, he gets sold into slavery into Potiphar's house, and he works his way up the ladder. I mean, and, and the text even says, the Lord was with Joseph. Pretty amazing to think about. God is with Joseph, but we don't think God is with Joseph. If we were to just look at him in our own time, I mean, he's a slave. How is God with him? He's been brought into slavery, and not only that, but Potiphar's wife gets some nice, she, she's really attracted to Joseph. She desires to have an affair with him. But he completely rejects her advances time and time again. Finally, to the point where he just runs away, leaving his cloak behind. And in anger, she falsely accuses him and has him put into prison. I mean, then he languishes in prison. I mean, does God look like he's with Joseph? From all intents and purposes, in our modern American Western mind, we'd say God isn't with this guy. I mean, the guy is deserted by his family, he's sold into slavery, and now he's being falsely accused of something, and now he's gone from bad to worse. He's in prison. And yet, it says that God is with Joseph in the middle of that. It's the understanding, when, God, when David says, preserve me, O God, it's not that God is going to keep us from these trials and problems, it's that God has promised to be with you in the midst of them. 
As you're going at your workplace and you're dealing with your boss or you're dealing with that difficult colleague or your, your child has declared that they are going off into some alternative lifestyle or they're giving themselves over all manner of drugs and addictions or your spouse says, I'm leaving you, God will be with you in the midst of that. If you call out to him, he will preserve you. He will give you the grace to bear up underneath that trial. God promises to go with us doesn't mean that we are exempt from that. And that's what, unfortunately, modern Christianity teaches. That if you've got problems, something's wrong. No. That's not it at all. It's God's promising to be with us in the midst of our pains, problems, our trials, our physical limitations, the difficulties that we experience in life. That's what David is saying. Preserve me, O God. I'm facing death. Preserve me. Hold on to me. Don't let me go. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. God preserved Joseph even though he went through hell. God was with him. God preserves and he also provides for us. God is faithful in his provision. He says, I have no good apart from you. That you, everything that I have is because of you. That you have provided for me. Now, we have to understand what provision means. Does that mean that God always gives us everything that we need? Some would say, yes, of course so. And my God shall meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.19. And that's easy to say in our country where we have an abundance. But as I've been watching the news, and I don't know if you have, but have you paid attention to what's been going on in Somalia recently? It's heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. Here's this nation that is going through the worst famine in the last 60 years. 13 million people are in need of food assistance. Basic needs. But the Somalian government is very friendly with Al-Qaeda. And so they they removed all of the Western aid agencies about two years ago, right before the famine really hit its crux and its height. And now the people are leaving Somalia in droves to Kenya to seek food, to seek to to be refugees. And the refugee camps are overwhelmed. As a matter of fact, the Kenyan government has even other refugee camps that haven't been inhabited. They won't even let Somalians in because they're afraid they'll never leave. I mean, talking about hundreds of thousands of people that are leaving their country. And what they call is they're, they're leaving on these roads they call the roads of death. Because these people are starving. They don't have water and they don't have food. And these women are having to bury their babies. They show up in these refugee camps with their babies' skin and bones and dead. They're burying them on the side of the road. I mean, every single one of these individuals has lost a loved one. Now, how do we say then that God provides for them? Well, do you know how? Because sometimes in God's provision, He desires to use us to do it. See, we are the ones at times that God has blessed in order to provide for others. God has given us the ability to have and make wealth. We didn't make ourselves. You didn't cause yourself to be born in this period of time. You didn't cause yourself to have the intelligence that you have to do the job that you do. That is from God. God has blessed you that you might bless other individuals. Not to take and take and take. I mean, we are a culture... And I'm amazed at how much we are just so needy all the time. And the reality is, is we have more, we're the richest nation on earth. 
And we constantly say it's not enough. Oh, my big screen TV's not working. Oh, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with that. And these people are really struggling. But God will provide, and God will provide their needs through his people. See, God not only has ordained the end results, but he has ordained the means. And I'm hoping that God would use us. I've been asking, I've been looking at aid agencies. How can we help individuals like this? How can we help be providers to them? And I'm so glad that I just found out that Samaritan's Purse is doing this. If you want to donate out to help with that, I would encourage you to go to their website and check out. I'm still trying to figure out with other staff and say, how can we help these individuals that are starving for food? It's not just their spiritual needs that we want to contribute to. James talks about, you know, not only contributing to their spiritual needs, but to their very physical needs as well. Now, to go back to our text, David is saying, I have no good apart from you. We think of the book of James where it says, all good and precious gifts come down from the Father of lights in heaven, that every gift is from God. And He is our provider in a very profound way. I mean, He's given us the abilities that we have, and He is providing through those things as well. But God will also supernaturally provide. I think of the Israelites as they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Day by day, the manna would come down. The quail would come down. Water comes from a dry rock. I mean, Moses even tells them, after 40 years wandering in the desert, your sandals did not wear out. God was able to sustain and provide, sometimes supernaturally, and other times through his people. But God does provide. And David understood that. He says, I have no good apart from you. You are my provider. You have given me everything that I have, everything that I do. You have established my steps and been with me the entire way. You are my provider. David understood that happily ever after means being used of God for his glory. But what does that look like? What does it involve? Well, it involves delighting and fellowshipping with the saints of God. Look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. It's his joy. God created us to be together. Let's get over this ridiculous notion that you can have Jesus and not the church. Jesus died for his church, which is his body. We are his people. And not because we deserved it. On the contrary, we didn't deserve it. David delighted in God's people and being with God's people, and so should we. If we're going to be spending eternity together, we need to get used to one another. But we also need to learn to work together, and that's not easy to do. We have personality differences, we have vision differences, philosophy differences, how we go about life, but it's only truly in the body of Christ that we can find ourselves getting along together. Because in getting along together and being together, we learn more about God. Now, I've talked about this in the past. When Charles Williams, one of the groups of the Inklings that met with C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, when he died, uh, C.S. Lewis said, part of the group died too. See, never again will I see Jack Tolkien laugh at a Williams joke. There was a part of Jack that died when Charles Williams died. See, when you are not with God's people, the vision that, of who God is gets diminished. Because we can't see how God is working in your life. We can't experience the gifts that God has given you. 
When we are together as the body of Christ, it is, we are operating the way that God desires to operate. And then we are able to see God's glory manifest within the midst of us. It's necessary that we be together as a body of believers, delighting in worshiping together. That's what I love about our church, is that we're a great mixture of different people. We have people that are high school dropouts and college grads. We have people that have been homeschooled and those that were in every type of, doing every type of drug imaginable. We've had those that have been in prison and, and then those who've never even seen a prison. We've got people coming from all different types of background and races. That's what I love about the body of Christ, that it's not monolithic, it's not monocultural. It's very broad. And every culture brings their experience of who God is to the table. What I mean by that is this. When I was working in Massachusetts, I was, I was pastoring there, and uh, we had a Portuguese young man, and we had a great deal of Russians. Now, the Russians come from a Russian Orthodox background, and I don't know if you've ever been in an Orthodox church, but in an Orthodox church, there are no pews. They stand for the entire service, sometimes over two hours. Why? Because you stand in the presence of majesty. They are very big in the vision and majesty of God. And a lot of these who have converted out of orthodoxy and become uh, Bible-believing individuals, not trusting in the mysticism of orthodoxy, which is very heavily apparent in aspects of it, but they carry that understanding of being in the presence of majesty. So when I would pray, they would automatically stand. I wouldn't even have to say it. So here they bring their presence of majesty, and they would be silent in services. But yet my friend who comes from a Portuguese background is very emotional. And would shout and yell at the top of his lungs because joy was flowing out of him. And these guys would have a very hard problem. And he, they would say, you don't have any reverence for God. And he'd say, where is your joy in God? But it's, see, it's, it's all of the races coming together. Those who come from a Hispanic background, those who come from African-American backgrounds, those who come from Asian backgrounds, those who come from Pacific Islander backgrounds, European backgrounds. Every one of us brings another aspect of who God is to the table. That's why at the throne of God, every tribe and tongue will be there. One of the greatest joys of my heart was when I was studying in seminary is in seeing what God is doing in the world. I mean, God is working in the world in a pretty amazing way. Ralph can attest, being in Uganda, they have this great love for God that makes ours look so small. They just want to hear and hunger for the Word of God all the time. I was, I was even speaking with uh, my brother Reuben, and he says, if I, if I take you to India, you can talk all day and all night, and they still want to have enough. I'm like, hallelujah, let's go. <laughs> Buy the ticket. Because I do. I want to learn. And you know, not just going to teach, but to learn. To seeing people depend upon God. I was reading a book the other day as he was uh, a man was in Indonesia, and he was invited to these... Uh, fellowship with these other believers and, and to speak to them. And he goes, I took my seminary training and I started writing down a sermon. He was talking about key points from the Reformation. And then these people are starting to testify and they're praying about the most things that just shook him out of his seat. He said they were praying about, their, one woman was praying about her child who was about to be blind or going home and she was afraid because her husband beat her. And others were looking for daily food. And he said, I realized that my ser sermon was woefully inadequate. And they had a greater faith than I did. 
because they were looking to God to supply their daily needs rather than their creaturely comforts. That's who God is. God is our provider and our sustainer. And that's what David understood. I have no good apart from you. And he wanted to be with the other saints of God. That's my delight because I begin to see in a greater way who God is by fellowshipping with other believers. As we learn what it means to get along and love one another as a body of Christ here on earth, we're showing what we're, that we're preparing ourselves for eternity. Through learning to live with one another, we discover who God is and what he wants from us. We also learn what it means to keep a short account of sin. Now look at verse 4 for a moment. The sorrows of those who run after God, another God, shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. Now, David here is describing what it means to live happily ever after by, by giving a contrast, by describing what it means to live according to the world's standards of truth. You see, the world wants you to live according to that standard, not God's. It is Satan working through the world by repackaging the lie he sold to Eve. That is, by offering us the ability to become like God without the true God. Now, what does that mean? It means that Satan wants us to embrace idolatry and worship the creation rather than the creator. Satan wants you to worship whatever God you want as long as it's not the true God. David knew that and wants us to be rejecting, flirting with Savior substitutes. Don't flirt with Savior substitutes. See, what is a Savior substitute and how do we flirt with it? A Savior substitute is just a nice way of saying idolatry. And what is idolatry? John Owen, the great theologian in the 16th century, said it's living affection to dying things. Or another definition a contemporary pastor has given is usually good things we turn into God things and in turn become bad things. I, I like this. I like this definition. Treating anything that's not God like it is God. It's a simple way of putting it. Treating anything that's not God like it is God. Now, Frederick Nietzsche, the great atheistic philosopher in the 18th century, said this, there are more idols in the world than there are realities. He's right. We can construct and make an idol out of anything. So David is saying here, the people that go after these idols, these other gods, multiply their sorrows. David is saying that those who flirt with Savior substitutes results in intense sorrow. That if you go after an idol, it's going to end in sorrow. And we can make an idol out of anything. We can make an idol out of status. That's what Adam and Eve did. They wanted to be like God. We can make an idol even as Esau. Remember, he traded his birthright for a bowl of stew. You can make an idol out of your stomach. You can make an idol out of sex. That's what Samson did. And what happened to him? I mean, his eyes got him into trouble, and what did God take away from him? His eyes. It caused pain, and then what did he have to do? He got his hair shorn, he lost his power. And then he had to dance before his captors as a blind guy, and his hair is growing back, and he's having to dance for them as thousands of them are laughing at him, and it makes him look pathetic. See, when you go after the things of the world, that's where it ends. 
It might be fun in games, just as it was for the prodigal for a period of time. And people come to you, and they're patting you on the back, and they're loving you, and they're partying with you. But the end result is pain, is suffering. And you know what? That doesn't have a happily ending in time or in the hereafter. It doesn't. And even those who, they may not experience the sorrow now, they will in eternity. That's why I, you're not to delight, a Christian's not to delight in the death of anyone. But there are times when I look at the news and I see individuals who've lived their life entirely away from God. And I hope God's judgment is swift. Though I hope for their repentance, there's a part of me that wants to see them receive all of the pain and evil that they've caused. Maybe you're a bit like me in that regard. I desire to I pray, I want to pray for their repentance, but I find myself going, God, judge them. Judge them. Judge them. But see, if we go after other gods, it will involve intense sorrow. Sorrow at the end of time for dedicating yourself to something which was a lie. But also sorrow in the here and now. I think about the Israelites and they had to deal with in the Old Testament when they were conquering the promised land. God told them to eliminate all the inhabitants of the land because they were idolaters. Now one of the false gods that the people worshipped was the god Molech. Now Molech required sacrifices of children. And the Israelites would offer their children, not Israelites, but the, the, the people of the inhabitants of the land, the Amorites, all these different individuals, would offer their children in child sacrifice. Now, today, we don't have individuals doing that per se in the United States of America, but you, I guarantee people are still offering their children in the pursuit of their idol. Whether that's metaphorically or whether that's physically. For those who get pregnant, and then they, want to, they said it, it, does it, it, it totally impugns upon the life that they want, and they have chores to abort that child, they are sacrificing to the idol of status. They're sacrificing to the idol of pleasure apart from God. They're putting their pursuit of their idol higher than everything else. And I see parents do it all the time. That they sacrifice their children, not just physically as in, within abortion, but metaphorically in the pursuit of their career, in their pursuit of their hobbies at times. And they can even do that in the, in the pursuits that they have their children do as they vicariously live through their children. They're teaching their children to be idle, to be idolaters. By honoring something else rather more than God. If you have your child do all of these different things and they end up to be a complete hater of God, but yet they still follow what you taught them as a young child, whether it's music, whether it's athletics, whether it's education, then that you have lost. You've lost your child. If it's not God and Him alone and seeing the greatness of who He is and His plan for the world, then you've lost your child. See, following a Savior substitutes in, results in intense sorrows. He says, multiply their sorrows. But it's also a costly sacrifice. People are willing to sacrifice whatever they will in order to get their idol. Da- David talks about drink offerings of blood. See, we un- are unfamiliar with what was going on during that period of time, but every god, so-called god, required a sacrifice. It'd be a sacrifice of blood. Here's a blood offering. They would sacrifice the animal by usually slitting the throat. They would hang the animal up, drain the blood, and then they would pour it out as an offering. David's saying, I won't do any of that. I won't even get near it. I'm not going to flirt with that. 
I'm not going to flirt with this, this idolatry of this world. And he says, I won't even take their names on my lips. See, he won't, I mean, he understood that going after an idol involved tense sorrow, costly sacrifice, because that's what the idol wants. It wants everything about who we are. It takes the essence of us. It takes our life from us, ultimately. And it involves blaspheming the sacred. See, David refuses to take their names on my lips. To do so for him would be blasphemous. And for those who do them, who utter the names and nourish the idols by continually giving credence to them, they are blaspheming the sacred. See, God is holy and he will not share his glory with another. We will continually nourish the idol in our lives. When we do that, we devalue God. When we, we give anything greater visibility or value higher than God, then we are being disobedient. Let me do explain. In Romans chapter 2, Paul is verbally sparring with someone who honors Jesus with their lips while doing something else entirely with their life. He writes in Romans 2, 17 through 24, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve of what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law and an embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now, let me try to put that in contemporary terms. And if you are sure that you are a guide to those that are really suffering, you're giving counsel to those who are struggling in sin, you're trying to be a light to your colleagues at work, you're teaching those who are foolish, you're maybe even serving in Sunday school, Awana, or Vacation Bible School, you are a Bible-believing Christian, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, this, are you saying one thing and doing an entirely different thing? You say, I follow God, I don't do any of this stuff. But then you find yourself currying to all different forms of entertainment, music, lifestyle, jokes, thoughts that are completely antithetical to God when you're away from the people of God. So what, in essence, you're doing, David says, I won't even put their names on my lips. He's saying, I want to be consistent at home, at the workplace, everywhere I go. Are you consistent in your walk with God? Are you the same person at work or with your family, or your friends, that you are when you are in the presence of God. Because if you don't, then you're causing other people to blaspheme the name of God. Living happily, living happily ever after involves rejecting Savior substitutes, but it also involves finding fulfillment in what God has supplied. Look at verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. See, David here is using language that is referring back to the Old Testament. When the nation of Israel went into the promised land, they were given certain allotments of property. So, and they would have that per, in per, uh, perpetuity. It'd be theirs for life. And that any tribe, these 12 tribes, were all assigned this specific land that was to be theirs forever. 
And that's how it would be parceled out, passing on from generation to generation. David is employing that language. He says, you are my lot. You, you've you've, got, you've got, made the lines fall for me in pleasant places. I'm going to be content with that. Now, one thing that we suffer from in the United States of America, and I am myself included in this, and I've been working on it, is godliness with contentment. We are some of the most discontented people that I know. We never have enough. Every, we're always looking forward to the next thing to satisfy our desire rather than finding our rest and satisfaction in God. We're always looking for something more, just a little bit more, a little bit more money, a little bit bigger of a promotion, a little bit more prestige, a little bit more power, a little bit more pleasure. All of these different things. Now, it's not saying that we shouldn't have ambition. We can have ambition, provided that it's ambition to do the best with our abilities that we've been given. But once our, our ambition is transformed into making ourselves look good at the detriment of others, then ambition has gone wrong. So we can have good ambition, but we also need to learn how to be content, as Paul wrote. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Learning to be content... The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. What does that mean? How can I be content? Paul writes to the Corinthians and helping them with their understanding of contentment. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord is a slave, is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let there let him remain with God. Learning to be content with what we have and what has been given to us. Now, finding fulfillment in what God has supplied involves two things. First, it involves this. It involves wisdom. That's why David says, you counsel me in the night, or my heart instructs me. That's what he's saying, is it involves wisdom, that you teach me. We need God's wisdom on the subject. And the scripture is very clear that if you're in need of wisdom, God will give it to you, as James says. Are you in need of wisdom? Ask God for it, because we need to understand God, the mind of God if we are going to be completely satisfied in God and with what we have. We must go to Him first. Have you done that? Are you finding your fulfillment in God? Now, David also does something different. He, he says, Bless the Lord. Now, it's another way of saying worship. See, he's saying, I worship the Lord who gives me counsel. Now, how does that involve fulfillment? C.S. Lewis said this, God communicates His presence to us through the process of being worshipped. See, when we want to go into the presence of God and, and, and know who God is, be with God's people and worship Him, because in worshiping Him, God communicates His presence to us. Finding fulfillment and what God has supplied involves wisdom, but it also involves worship. And we can't worship if we aren't at church. 
Sure, we need to worship the Lord privately, but we also need to worship the Lord corporately, which is why David wrote, I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. What does he mean? He means that God is the first priority of his life, and because God is the first priority, he will never be shaken. And for that, here's what it means in our culture and today. I have set the Lord always before me. Here's what it means, all right? It means making God first priority in your schedule. Does God have first place in your schedule? Is God getting the leftovers, or is he getting the main course? Why do we always think that we can cheat God by giving time to our hobbies and our sometimes sinful habits and not to the Holy One? And no, I, I know many different people within this room have a hunger and a desire to witness to people about Jesus and you don't know how. And probably you're, you're fearful of what people might say. You're fearful of the repercussions. And I'm reading this fascinating book right now called Replenish by a guy named Lance Witt. And he talks about having courage for God involves communion with God. Those that have the greatest courage for God spent the most time in communion with God. Now think about that for a moment, because you have Peter and John in the book of Acts. Now remember, Peter and John with the other apostles, after Jesus had been put on the cross and he had died and was buried, they were hiding in the upper room. Now you see him at the beginning of the book of Acts, Instead, of, he's hiding from these Jewish authorities because he's fearful of what they will do to him. That in the book of Acts now, he is standing out openly after encountering the resurrected Christ, and he is speaking and testifying on behalf of Christ in, right in the presence of these authorities that he was afraid of. Now it's interesting that they are dragged, Peter and John, are dragged before the Jewish authorities, and the Jewish authorities question them, and they note something. They note something that's very peculiar, or very interesting within the book of Acts, chapter 3. They note and they say, they are common, ordinary men. But they note they were with Jesus. See, God takes the common and in the ordinary, but when they are with Jesus, you get a courageousness and a boldness to testify on His behalf. Now, the only way that you can testify on His behalf is that if you're spending time with Him, and the only way that you can spend time with Him is if you're making Him a priority. Is God a priority in your life? Is He? Are you spending time in communion with Him? Or are you just continually putting off to the side? You're neglecting reading the Word of God, and you notice other sinful habits starting to creep in. Let me tell you, it's hard. But we make a priority what we deem to be important. Somehow we make a priority for our hobbies because we find more enjoyment in our hobbies than we do in the presence of God. Something's wrong with that. Something is deeply wrong with that. I mean, it's amazing. People say, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. It's like saying, I don't have enough time to exercise. And right now I'm trying, I'm experiencing that. I'm trying to find time in my schedule to do it. And I hear people say that I don't have time. I don't have time. And then they have, something happens to them physically. They have a heart attack, they go to the doctor, suddenly they have time. They find time in their schedule. They reorient the schedule now and build it around that. Are you building that time for God in your life? Are you spending time in communion with Him? I know many people are going on vacations, but don't take a vacation from God. I understand that. I mean, vacations are great. But don't spend time away from God. Be with God and be with His people. 
Make God first in your schedule. God, spend, those who spend the greatest time in communion with God will also have the, great, the greatest courage for God. Spend more time in communion with God. Now, we've come to the heart and crux of the passage. It is in these next verses, 8 through 11, that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2, verse 25 through 28, in the church's very first sermon. And he says, it's also the same passage Paul refers to in Acts chapter 13, verse 35. Both of them use these verses to refer to Christ's resurrection. Now that is the boast that David has. He writes, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, what's David doing here? First of all, he's rejoicing in his future with the Savior, and we are too as well. Even at the face of death, he says this, My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. I could die, but it dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the abode of the dead. It's the Hebrew way of saying the abode of the dead. Or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, he's not referring to himself here, but he is also known, as the Scripture says, as a prophet. And he's looking forward to Christ. So he's looking forward to two things. First of all, he's working forward to his own resurrection. because He says, you're not going to abandon me to Sheol, nor are you going to let your Holy One see correction. And the, we know through the testimony of the apostles that he is, they're testifying about Christ's resurrection. Christ's resurrection is everything. It's everything. It is the hope that we have. It is the greatest thing that has happened in the history of the world. That Christ rose from the dead. And now this life is not the end. I mean, we get bored so easily in our world today. And we have little to zero capacity to think about the greatness of God because we are too busy dealing with the trifles of this world that when we encounter the presence of God, we don't have any ability to understand or even register on the spectrum of who, I mean, who he is. But it's at the throes of death that people start getting real serious. When life takes on a whole new focus, when they realize that this, the world is going to end as they know it, it is going to go on without them, that they are going to die I remember as a youth pastor, that's one of the hardest things to do. And I, I feel for my brother David as he's teaching our kids at times. Because you young people that are out there, teenagers, listen to me. Is you, you can, you, this world is so against God and is so caught up in getting you to do your own pleasures that it's slowly lulling you to sleep like carbon monoxide. And it's killing you. And it's killing your capacity for who God is. I had a young man. Sitting in my youth ministry, he was an eighth grader. All he wanted to do was party. That's all he wanted to do. He, wanted to, he, he, want, he was a wannabe gangbanger is what he was. That's what he was. He wanted to hang out with them. He wanted to be with them. And, that's, and we tried to preach him, and he didn't have any capacity to always be laughing and joking around. He wouldn't listen. Well, his life was taken from him when he was 18 years old because he did start running with gangbangers, and one of them walked up to the car and plugged him twice on the street. Now, this is a kid that I had. He was eighth grade, and his life was taken from him at 18 years old. Now, that's why Solomon says, when he, he, the book of Ecclesiastes speaks to young people. Follow God. He's telling you, after a reflection of life, this is the way to a true and fulfilled life. 
He goes, I've given myself to pleasure and meant nothing. I gave myself to building great buildings. It meant nothing. I gave myself to all these things, and it meant nothing. No power, no prestige, no position. It meant nothing. I mean, think about what the world wants today, and I'm still thinking of the young people. Everybody wants to be famous. Look at Amy Winehouse. You guys, young, young people know who I'm talking about. 25 years old. She's, or 27. 27 years old. Gone. She's now in the scrap heap of history. She had all this fame and notoriety, and she didn't have Christ. Now, her life is over. Where is she? Do you think now she is regretting the decisions and choices she made then? I guarantee it. I guarantee it. You can continue on the road that you're on, and it's going to end so badly. I've seen it too many times. I've been at the funerals. I have stood at the, the, the gravestones of these individuals who just wasted their life and thought, it'll never happen to me. 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, doesn't matter. Living a life apart from God. There's no future. That's why David says, even in the midst of death, even though I might suffer persecution and pain for the name of the word of God, he says, you will not abandon my soul to shield. That's not the end. Or let your Holy One see decay. He says, I rejoice in my resurrection. And that's all based on Jesus' resurrection. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So we rejoice in that resurrection that we will have, the one that Christ has. And we also understand that Christ could come at any moment. We rejoice at Christ's return. Christ's return. See, there's a holy longing placed within every person on this earth. People try to fill this longing with all kinds of pleasures, passions, and pursuits, but none will ever fill them except Christ and Him alone. As for the believer who has Christ, there is still a longing that only God can fulfill. As the deer pants for water, so we pant and long for God. We have a soul thirst that only He can quench. But the totality of that longing will remain unfulfilled until we can appear before God as our passage shows. His right hand are pleasures forevermore. We will have a holy discontentment until that day when we will see Him face to face. Now, C.S. Lewis described this. He said, The Christian says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hungry, hung, hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else, which they are only a kind of copy, echo, or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to the other country and to help others do the same. See, we were made for a relationship with God. We groan until the day when we shall see Him face to face. Can you imagine that day? The day that you will stare Jesus in the eye? 
The Apostle Paul wrote, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. Think about that. Something greater than anything else you have ever experienced awaits in eternity, all because Christ Jesus went to prepare a place for you. And it's been said many different times, God took six days to create the heavens and the earth, and He's been gone for 2,000 years. How great and awesome will that be? What God has prepared for those that love Him. As Paul wrote, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The whole creation groans in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, as Paul wrote, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit of God. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. As John wrote, Beloved, we are God's children and now, now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. That's why David could say, At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You will continually experience pleasure. You will never get bored. It will never get old. It will always be new. It will always be amazing. That heaven and what Christ has accomplished on your behalf is absolutely phenomenal. Have you started longing for home? Heaven is our true home. Are you looking forward to that day when you go to be with Him? That is when we will truly live happily ever after. Where will we experience fullness of joy? In the presence of God. Have you trusted in Him? Have you repented of your sins and invited Jesus into your life to save and transform you? The Bible says that, we, that He will in no way cast out those who love Him, who come to Him. And the Scripture also testifies that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Call out to Him and He will save you from your sins, change the trajectory of your life, and give you hope and a purpose, both now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray.